0: When I was working at Hy-Vee, I was working in the produce department and a couple of different people that I worked with pretty much every single night at the produce department. And one of the guys that I worked with, we had a really simple rule of thumb. Whenever customer service called for someone from the produce department, no one could go up to customer service except him. And it just kind of happened that way. He said, whenever customer service called, I'll be the one to go ahead. Well, after this kind of went along and I worked with him for a while, I just kind of thought, well, what's going on here? Why do you always get to go up to customer service? And so I asked him one day, I said, well, why do you get to go up to customer service? Very simple. That's where the cute girls work. (laughs) Well, then I replied, I don't have to go to customer service because they come to me. (laughs) In all seriousness, in all seriousness, it was pretty clear this guy had one agenda. Every time customer service called, it wasn't like a, well, we'll get there when we get there. It was like, no, you stay here. I'm going. <laughs> he had pretty clear, succinct reasoning for why he was going where he was going. Well, I have a simple question for you. Why does God do what God does? Why does God do what God does? I mean, how bold of us even to ask the why question, right? I mean, who, is, who are we to, to know why God does what he does? It tells us in the Bible and the prophets that there's a lot of mystery to God, that God's ways are unknown to us. And that's true. There's a lot that God does or doesn't do, and we don't know why. But we also know something very clearly from Scripture, that when God acts, we know why God acts. This morning, God's word is hopefully going to lay claim, clearly before us God's motives and intentions, and it might offend you. I want you to look in Philippians chapter 2 here, and we've been looking at this passage, and most of us are familiar with this passage, and for a lot of people, Philippians 2 is known as the Jesus hymn. Verse 6 through 11 there is a, is a song that people would sing in the early church about the life of Jesus Christ. And we're going to zero in on just one little portion of that song this morning, right at the end. It gets us right and it answers the question, why does God do what God does? Philippians 2:11, the hymn, the song finishes with a very simple sentence, to the glory of God the Father. So, in the earlier in the hymn, the apostle Paul was describing the life of Jesus and it starts by saying that Jesus left heaven in verse 6 there about Jesus was like God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So what did he do? He came to earth, made himself nothing, becoming a servant, becoming like you and I in human form. And then the song goes on to describe the life of Jesus. What happened to Jesus? He comes to earth and what does he do? He sets his eyes on one place, the cross. Nothing can get between him and the cross. Even one of his key leaders gets in front of him. Peter gets in front of him. And he tries to to turn him. But at that moment, Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus has his eyes on one thing, the cross. Why is Jesus going from the manger to the cross? Think about this for a moment. On one hand, the manger. It's the simplest, most basic of human life. A manger is is what animals eat out of. Now, the manger was not like the stained glass manger that you have at home on your nice little shelf. The manger was most likely simply just made out of stone or brick, probably put together by someone with mud to make sure it holds together. I mean, just very basic. There'd be hay in there, maybe some grain in there or whatever. Nobody would walk into a place and be like, whoa, a manger. Let us stop and have a moment of reverence. No, a manger was the simplest, dirtiest of humanity. And God comes into the manger, the simple and the lowly. Then on the other end of the spectrum, Jesus sets his sights on what? The cross. Now the cross, again, we've made into a glorious symbol, but the cross is not glorious at all. The cross is death. The cross is punishment. The cross was used by the Roman Empire to do one thing and one thing only, to kill. To kill their greatest enemies and instill in people the fear of the Roman Emperor. When Jesus comes to earth, he comes in the lowliest possible position, and then he goes to the most grotesque possible place, the cross. Why? Why? Why would the king of the universe not just come in the midst of greatness and majesty, for that's who he is? He has to come and be like us in the lowliest of place, and then take our ultimate Punishment, so that we could be restored to relationship with God. That was the process, but why? Well, the why is given at the end of the song to the glory of God the Father. Jesus went to the cross because he wanted his Father praised. Jesus came to the manger because he wanted his Father praised. Now, you might think to yourself, that's a little bit odd. Didn't Jesus go to the cross because he loves us? Absolutely. But the love is who he is. And so God is obsessed with his own glory. Catch this. This is so important to catch. If you miss this, you miss Christianity and you move toward idolatry. God is obsessed with his own glory. God wants to be praised. God has mercy upon you and I today because he wants to be praised. In Isaiah chapter 48, we hear from this prophet. and You might be wondering, why are we reading from some prophet in Isaiah as we head towards Christmas here? I hope you catch from Isaiah 48 this amazing message. God is speaking to the nation of Israel, his people. And he's saying to them basically, oh, my goodness, you're idiots. You keep disobeying. You're doing all of this bad stuff. You're wrong." I'm going to send a suffering servant on your behalf, and I'm going to have mercy on you. But in Isaiah 48, don't miss the why. Why does God have mercy in Isaiah 48? He says it just back to back. You you saw Doyle stumble just a moment. Because I think he thought, what, does it say that really? No, he says it really, for my name's sake. Then he says it right again after, for my name's sake. The Old Testament Hebrew uses repetition to emphasize importance. The prophet is using human language and emotion to draw out the importance of this. Why does God have mercy on you and I? It's for his own glory. It's that his name will be praised. That prophecy in Isaiah 48 finishes with the prophet saying, God will not share his glory with anyone else. Why does God do what God does? Whenever God acts, you can be certain of one thing. It's for his glory. God acts for the honor of his name, for he will share his glory with no one. God is obsessed with what? His glory, his fame, his praise. And that's good news for you and I. Most of the time when we think of someone that's obsessed with their own fame and their own glory, what is that like? Yeesh, get away from me. Kind of like enough of yourself, right? You don't need to tell us anymore how good you are. I could name a certain quarterback from a certain football team that has this issue, but we don't want to talk about that football team here, right? Just constantly talk about themselves, remind us of how good they are. Most times it's like, if you're about your own glory, that's not good. Why is it good for God then? It's good for God because God is perfect. And so it's actually to our benefit for when he's for his own glory because he can only act in a loving and just way towards us. And so praise the Lord that God wants to be glorified because if God did not want to be glorified, we would not have peace on earth. We all are probably very familiar with that verse from Luke chapter 2 where the angels come and they start singing, right? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to whom God is pleased. A lot of our Christmas cards have what? The second half. Even in the secular world, everybody uses the second half, right? Peace and goodwill to, to everyone. Well, there's no peace and goodwill. Why? We left off the introduction, We left off the first words of the song, glory to God in the highest. This is the whole point of Jesus coming is to bring God glory. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 is not like, ooh, I need to find something to end this sentence with. To the glory of God. No, 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 no. He's bringing it all into focus and saying, this is what it's all about. Let's just do a quick little Bible study. I want you to grab your Bibles and go with me really quick, just to, to show you, because I don't want you thinking like, oh, he's pulling out one little sentence here from who knows where. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans in the New Testament. Romans 11. Romans considered the greatest book in the Bible, and in a sense it's the it's the deepest and lays out all of the deep doctrines of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Romans chapter one through eleven is all about what God has done for us. And check out how that whole portion of scripture ends. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen right there. He's just finished telling all the good stuff that God's done for us in Christ Jesus. He says, "Hey, guess what? You've heard all of what God's done. Now guess who gets all of the glory? God himself." Now turn if you would, 1st Peter, keep going to the right in your Bibles towards the back of them. 1st Peter chapter 4. 1st Peter chapter 4. 1st Peter chapter 4. verse 11 1 Peter 4 This gives us a little different unique perspective and that this isn't describing necessarily something that God has done and now praise him for it. 1 Peter 4 is talking about when God's people are empowered to work on God's behalf. So in other words, 1 Peter 4, 10, 11 and 12 you are really talking 10 and 11 are really talking about God working through us. So why does God work through us? Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When God gives a preacher the ability to clearly articulate the word of God, it's not for the praise of the preacher, it's for the praise of God. When God gives the ability to a musician to sing a song, it's not to the praise of the musician, it's to the praise and the glory of God. Every time that God works through some of his people, it's for God's own glory. Everything God is doing is he's working for his own glory to the praise of his name. If that's not enough convincing for you, turn with me to John chapter 17. The gospel of John, John 17, is... The Lord's prayer is the, the Jesus' final prayer when he goes and, and spends time immediately before his death is, is coming quickly. John 17, halfway through the first verse, he begins the prayer. John 17, one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, in the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See any theme in the opening of the prayer there? Glory! Jesus says it really clearly. What does he say? Father, I've brought you glory. I've done the work you sent me to do. And now what does he say it again? Glorify the Son. So he's kind of saying it this way. He's saying, Father, make the Son name great, but then catch the so that there at the end of that verse, so that what? The Father would be made great in return. It's all about what? Making known the greatness of God, exhibiting the glory and the majesty of God. God is all about God's glory. History has one goal, the glory of God. Turn with me to the end of the Bible, one final verse. Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. We get this amazing vision that God has given John, this amazing vision of what's going to take place at the end. Revelation chapter 21 22 and 23 Revelation 21 22 and 23 And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb Again, just trying to describe in human language of what's going to happen at the end of time is what? That which is going to be fully present, that has never been fully present except in the person of Jesus Christ is going to be the glory of God. And that is the consummation of history. That we've arrived at the moment where the glory of God is that which gives radiance to absolutely everything. History is working towards one thing and that's the glory of God, making the majesty and the greatness of God known. So where does that put you and I today? Puts us asking the question, does the purpose of my life reflect the purpose of history? Is my life in alignment with God's overarching purpose? Now, think for a moment if you were a box worker in an assembly line. You're an assembly line working in a box worker. You're in charge of kind of putting the piece of tape that brings it up and put that final piece of tape on it. And you're kind of like, you know what? I think it would be really cool if there was a little piece of tape over here on the side that was just kind of my little marking. So whenever that box came along, you first did what? You put the long piece of tape on, then you went over here and put a little piece of tape on the side and sent it down the road. Supervisor comes over and says, what are you doing? Well, putting tape on the box. Supervisor's going to have one message for you. You're not in alignment with the overarching purpose of this company. This company is in the business of creating boxes that hold stuff. We are not in the business of just putting tape in random places on cardboard. So you as a worker are what? You're out of alignment with the overarching purpose of the company you work for. Now, is it a great illustration? No, because we're not assembly line workers and, and robots. But we're much. how much more are we part of God's overarching company than we are when we just generally work? You are God's created being. The question is, are you in alignment with God's overarching purpose? And so today... I ask a question that we've been wrestling with as a church over the last month in November. We ask the question, are you going to take aim for God's glory? Do you take aim for God's glory or are you taking aim for your own comfort and your own glory? Are you in line with the overarching purposes of God? Here's what this really comes down to, and here's a different way of thinking about it, maybe that you haven't thought about it before. The question really is, are we going to be people-centered Christianity or God-centered Christianity? People-centered Christianity is this. Accept Jesus in your heart today. Be forgiven and have a place in heaven. Add Jesus on, and you're good to go. God-centered Christianity is everything revolves around the glory of God and Jesus forgives me to restore me so that I can engage in a life of living for the glory of God. God God-centered Christianity is all about God. People-centered Christianity is all about using Jesus to get what I want. Here's why Christmas for most of us, for the majority of culture, Christmas is one of two things. Christmas is either a momentary bliss, right? Everybody loves Christmas. Even if you hate Jesus, you love Christmas. You're out shopping, going down to the falls, checking out the lights. It's awesome. Everybody loves Christmas because it brings a moment of bliss. Even people that hate Jesus are longing for what? A moment of pure bliss and peace, where there's no trouble, where they don't have to put up with their boss or their employees or or worry about their checkbook. They just want a moment of bliss. And so for a lot, Christmas is just that moment of bliss where you're just like, oh, a pure celebration. And then Tuesday, right back to the way it was before. That's what Christmas is for a lot. For others, Christmas is a season of discouragement. It's a season of discouragement because the holidays remind you of all of your brokenness and also remind you of the brokenness in the world. So on one hand, holidays remind us of brokenness because of good times. But when you have reminders of those things without the overarching promises of God, it becomes constant discouragement. And for many people, we enter now into the season with the highest suicide rate from Christmas through January. Why? Because it's a season of discouragement. Because they're having reminders of the brokenness of life and their own life without the promises of God. So what's the difference then? Christmas can be more than momentary bliss and Christmas can be more than a season of discouragement if it's a God-centered Christmas if we don't leave off the first half of the angel's song, glory to God in the highest. Because now Christmas for a God-centered Christian becomes this, a reminder. Christmas is just simply an extra reminder, a moment in time to spend intentional reflection upon God coming in human flesh. But it's a momentary reminder in an ongoing journey of bringing God glory. So is Christmas going to be a reminder for you of what God has done and come in the flesh? Or are you just going to let Christmas be momentary bliss and the next day all be gone? There's only one way to move from momentary bliss to eternal joy, and that's to be restored to a position of bringing God glory through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so today we ask a question, is my life purpose in alignment with God's overarching purpose to bring God glory. You may have not thought about it this way before. Because what? Christmas is all about the people you're giving gifts to, right? I've got news for you. Christmas is not about you. Christmas is not about me. Christmas is about the glory of God. And so this season, will you take some intentional time? And will you say, I want to honor God in the mundane? I want to honor God in the mundane. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when we're eating and drinking, when we're spending time on the road, when we're playing games with our kids, when we're working, am I seeking to honor God? If God's overarching purpose is to glorify himself, then how much more so in the little things of the day-to-day should we be seeking to bring God glory How small a view of God do we have if we think we can just ignore God in the small things and still be God-centered? God is aware of everything and engaged in everything and wants to be honored in everything. And so very simply today, are you honoring God in the mundane, in your workplace, in your family, with your friends? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you hear it in this church all the time, right? Do everything to the glory of God, whether you eat or you drink, do it all to the glory of God. Are you honoring God in the mundane? The second thing is this. Are you bringing honoring to God with your giving? The way that we honor God with our giving is by bringing our first fruits. And you say, oh, pastor, it's Christmas. Why would you have to go to money? Got to go to money because... It's the number one idol that's fighting for our hearts. And you can't honor God if money is no longer money, if money's God. Money becomes money rather than God when we honor God with our first fruits. And we were all challenged with this last month during November to take a step of faith and say, you know what, for the remainder of the year, I'm going to honor God with my first fruits. I'm going to give right off the top and say, God, you take it because what? I trust That you're going to provide and then what happens when you do this you praise God for the provision so many of us myself included I'm so guilty of this myself included we get that paycheck and what we don't praise God I tell you what you spend a little bit of time with something someone who has nothing but gives you find out really quickly that what first fruits giving results in the glory of God Because every time they receive something, what do they do? They thank God. God provided. Are you first fruits giving? Let me make it really practical for you here today. Over the next two weeks, I want to challenge you. Take a reflection on the whole previous year. Most of us, we just fly through. We don't think about this intentionally. Take a reflection. Go back and actually look. Have I given to God right off the top? Not being legalistic here, if you know, go back, check all of your net income, gross income, add it all up, do the. Not saying that that's not the right spirit. If that's your spirit, don't even go the direction. But looking at the overarching picture, have I honored God with my first fruits? So I'm dependent upon God to bring the next in. Am I honoring God in the mundane? Am I honoring God with first fruits giving? And thirdly. Are you taking steps of faith where you're saying, I'm going to do something that, you know what, if it happens, God is glorified. So many of us live our lives, we set goals for our church and for ourselves that we can accomplish on our own strength. Are you stepping out in faith in any way where the only way it's going to happen and works is if God intervenes? Why is this not optional and it's commanded? It's commanded, why? Because then God gets glorified. Because if you step out in faith and it works, what do you do? Praise God! Right? This last week, my wife bought this new coffee cup holder for our kitchen, right? And I'm pretty handy, as most of you know, right? So when she she asks me to hang it, what do you do? Of course I can hang that little little thing there, right? So you go down, you get the drill, bring it all up, boom, boom, hang it up, and man, mm, I am a good husband. Now, I was doing something simple that's expected that I'll be able to do it. Now, if my wife said to me, hey, you know what? I would like a brand new headboard and, and bed, handcrafted by you. I mean, I'm good, but I'm probably not that good. And so if I did that, built it, and put it in, and she walked in, and was like, whoa, that's amazing. What would happen? She'd say, what? You're amazing. No, she'd say, God, you are Awesome. Because what? You know that someone just did something that they're incapable of doing on their own. This is why it's so important that you and I step out in faith. So how are you stepping out in faith today? Have you said, yes, I'll consider adoption? Have you said, yes, I'll consider going on the mission field for a little while? Have you said, yes, you know what? You know what? I'm, I'm not very good with kids, but you know what? It says in the Bible to teach the kids. Word of God to the next generation. So you know what I'll do? I'm going to step out and I'm going to mentor a kid. You know what? God's going to give the gift of patience. Because that's a step of faith. You know who gets the glory for that? It's not you for giving the patience, but God forgiving you the patience. Where are you taking a step of faith today where only God can work so only God gets the glory? God's overarching purpose of creation in history is one thing. The glory of God. The angels appeared to the shepherds and started with one phrase, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because that's the purpose of God. And he wants that to be your purpose and my purpose today. The question is, will we begin today or will we wait for the final day? This is absolutely critical to understand. In Philippians chapter 2, I believe it gives the clearest explanation of what's going to happen on the final day. On the final day, every single knee in all of history is going to bow and say, Praise be the name of Jesus Christ. Every knee is going to be forced to bow, or every knee is going to already be bowed because it has been bowed willingly, Throughout their life. The bad news this morning is this. Every knee that is forced to bow. Will stay bowed for good. From that moment on. Every knee. That is forced to bow. Will stay bowed. From that moment on. For eternity. In separation from God. But every knee that has been. Willingly bowing. Up to that point and at that point, catch this, we'll get a brand new knee. Because you're going to be restored for the resurrection for eternity. The question is not, are you going to bring glory to God? Everybody's going to bring glory to God at some point. Are you going to bring glory to God now for your life here and now? So you can have his peace and prepare for a life of eternity. And so I want to invite you this morning to reflect on your own heart and your own mind and recognize that God created all things for his glory. And there's a little verse in Romans chapter 3 that almost all of us are familiar with, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I hope this morning you have a new way of looking at that verse. Very simply, every human being was created to bring glory to God, but guess what? Every single human being has turned their back on God. For all have sinned. But the good news is this. Romans 3.24 goes on to describe that Jesus Christ came and took our place on the cross, took your punishment and my punishment. Why? So that we could be restored to bringing God glory right now. And so today, will you say to God, God, I have sinned against you. God, I have neglected your glory. And will you say, God, forgive me through your Son, Jesus Christ. Restore me, return me to bringing you glory in all of life. I want to close with a prayer this morning. As we pray, I just want to leave a time of silence. And I want to invite you personally. Acknowledge to God that you've sinned and fallen short of his glory. Ask God for forgiveness through Jesus Christ and ask God to restore you on a path of living for his glory. Let us pray. Almighty Creator, we come before you this morning acknowledging that we and everything exists for your glory. We come before you now acknowledging that we have fallen short of your glory. By what we have said, by what we have left undone, by what we have thought. We ask for your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We ask boldly that you would restore us to a position of bringing you glory in all things. At this time, God, we each come before you silently in our hearts and in our minds.